you turn to Proverbs, and uh, we're going to look at Proverbs 18, 1 through 12 today. We're going to talk about, uh, about honor. Um, and I will tell you that um, a culture of honor has been a big thing in our family and in our extended family. And we have uh, benefited from uh, really developing this culture within our extended family, our four children, our in-law children, our grandkids. And so I want to talk about a, about a pathway toward honor that's a little bit different than what you might think this morning. Uh, in 2010, there was an article in the Atlantic Month, Monthly by Philip K. Howard, and he, and he posed the following question, where is honor in America? Uh, it, was, it was a surprising article. Uh, Howard is an attorney, and he's a pro prolific writer, and he often appeared on the John Stewart show when, uh, when it was on. He does not identify as a Christian, and that made his article all the more amazing to me. In short, he said, uh, we, we, have a, we have an honor problem within our culture. And he talked about the, uh, the nature of identity politics, and he said this, uh, the scene in America is not hard to imagine in visual terms. Pretty much every organized interest and many citizens are grabbing at the common good like ravenous animals, as if the common good was a dead carcass for us to feast upon. And pretty soon, the common good will be picked to the bone. He goes on to say that the hard problem facing America right now is how to dislodge the politics of selfishness. And what he talked about was this egocentric demandingness that permeates the culture in America. And Howard's answer in his article was the return to honor. Uh, he said, perhaps what is needed to break the downward spiral of selfishness is to embrace the language of honor, and not just the language, but to embrace a culture of honor. Now, think about our country for a second. How difficult would this be in the current ethos of American culture? Extremely difficult. We do not possess a culture resembling anything like honor within our culture right now. In fact, I was Googling uh, just the search term, showing honor, demonstrating honor, manifesting honor, and so on. And anytime I put an adjective in front of honor, I got a lot of hits that were primarily hits dealing with Christianity and the military. I mean, I tried this any number of different ways. And the people who are talking about honor, at least if you do a Google search, and I did a lot of different ways of doing this, the people talking about honor are followers of Jesus Christ and people who are active in the military. Those are two places in our culture where honor is discussed. Honor is not highly esteemed as a value elsewhere in our culture. So what I'm saying to you is that pursuing honor makes you de facto countercultural. It makes you automatically countercultural as far as mainstream society goes. Well, in Proverbs um, 18, 1 through 12, um, he talks about this. And in verses 1 through 9, he talks about how people lose honor. In uh, 10 and 11, he talks about how people gain honor, and then he gives us this one final amazing thing to remember in verse 12. And the, the main idea that we're going to see from this passage is if you want honor, you have to pursue the right kind of relationship 
with God. So, first um, eight verses is losing honor. Foolish people lose honor because they make me first decisions that undermine their lives. Um, so let me, let me begin by reading this, just to so get a feel for what he's going to say here. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. That gives you a feel for how dishonor manifests itself in the life of a fool. So, since fools are the ones that forfeit honor, let's remember the definition of a fool. A fool is the person who says, I'm first and God doesn't matter. I'm first and God doesn't really make a difference in my life. I'm first and I don't really care about His claims upon me as His creature. The fool is all about me being first. And you see this concept of fool in Jesus' parable of the rich fool. Here's a guy who um, is this young entrepreneur, and he is really advancing in his career, and he says to himself, what should I do since my barns are bursting with inventory, my warehouses are more and more full? What should I do? I know what I'll do. Has a little business meeting with himself. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there, in those new awesome warehouses that are all computer automated, I'm going to store all my grain and my goods. Um, and that's the, that's the fool. And God says to him, this very night, your soul is required of you. That's the fool. The fool is, I'm first, God doesn't matter. I'm first, and His values don't rank highly in my life. And God calls that person the fool because He's not factored in that God is sovereign over His life. You know a lot of fools, and you would never call them that because that would be impolite in this culture. But there are fools that, that are obvious. Uh, one is Peter Singer of Princeton. Another is Richard Dawkins of Oxford. Richard Dawkins has become so outrageous within the British culture that even the Guardian calls him a kook because he says so many, so many crazy things. Peter Singer's the guy at Princeton who believes that uh, it's more important to preserve animals than infants. Infants, they, they can be sacrificed. Animals, animals, not so much. But truly, I mean, you know, there are people that you walk into the Starbucks line and they order the same multi-adjective drinks that you do. They order those same drinks. And what classifies them as a fool is not their sophistication in the eyes of the world, but it's, it's their, their attitude. I'm first, God doesn't matter. And the problem with somebody who is a fool is that they begin to erode their personal honor, and they do that in several ways. Let's look at the first way. 
The first way fools erode their honor is by isolating themselves from people who will help them grow. Whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. Continuing with that idea, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing his opinion. And when wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. Those three verses are tied together in this way. The first thing a fool does is he withdraws from community. Now, what I mean by that, they may have plenty of friends, but they withdraw from those people who are challenge them to do what's right. Then a fool will stop listening. When they get challenged, they shut their ears. They will not listen to people who will challenge them in a different path. And then they do stupid things, and those stupid things become public. And then everything goes downhill for that person. Fools tend to erode their honor by removing themselves from relationships where, where they can be challenged. Here's another way that fools will lose their honor. They'll lose their honor through the words that they say. A fool's lips walk into a fight. Now, you know, whenever I, when I, when I read this, I, I imagine a guy walking into a bar, talking big, talking tough, talking like he's hot stuff, and he's boasting, and he's arrogant, and the words that he says practically beg for somebody to push back on him and harm him. And so you think about this guy who, you know, finally somebody just, just belts him in the mouth. And you know people like that who use words in such a way that, no, you're not going to physically belt him in the mouth, but you feel like it, and you feel like putting him down with your words. Fools tend to erode honor by the words that they use, you know, because they're number one. And when you're number one, Everything revolves around you. And so if you're number one and people are coming against you, you want to lash out and prove that you're number one. But maybe you think, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not that kind of person. My, my lips don't walk into fights. My, my mouth is not my, my ruin. So for you, a different verse applies. The next one, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down into the inner parts of the body. So you're not that brash person walking into a fight because your words are so inflammatory. You're that person who loves to whisper and gossip. And the illustration that he uses is a wonderful illustration. It's like these little morsels on a plate. You know, I, I look at this and I think about uh, afternoon tea in England. And when our daughter was living there, I used to love going to these places for afternoon tea in England because you get things like this. And you would have one of them and you think, you know, it's really small. I can have another. No problem. And then you have another and you think, hey, these are really small and these are really good. And I'm really curious about that, what, what, that, what that would taste like. And pretty soon, three turns into six, turns into 12. And then you have this sugar high. And that's a little bit like the person who is a whisperer of secrets, somebody who's, who's a gossip, because somebody whispers a secret to you, doesn't it feel delicious? Like, man, I'm part of the inner ring. I just got told a secret that nobody else knows about that person over there. 
I'm part of the inner circle. And if I whisper this to somebody else, then I'll bring them into the inner circle, and we'll be the ones who are in the know. And what you've done is you've eroded honor by the misuse of your, of your words. And here's the problem. The problem is, 18 verse 4, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters, and the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling book. The bubbling book, those are, those are good words. Those are good words. Those are words that are easy to see, they're pleasant, they sound good. The problem is the deep waters part. Because the deep waters part says that you've got something inside you you're not letting out. Things that are inauthentic, things that are, that are wrong. We were in Russia and uh, we passed this lake one time and we were told about the terrible pollution in this lake in Russia. This is the most polluted lake in the world. This is not the lake we passed in Russia, but it was similar to that. And uh, that's the idea of deep waters. It's murky waters where you are not easy to get to know because you got stuff down in there and, and these words just come out and they are going to harm other, other people. And then a, another way that we lose honor as we get sloppy in our work. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Notice how, how vivid that word picture is. You know, a brother to him who destroys. The destroyer is the one who destroys the work environment, destroys the relationships in the work environment, destroys the ethics in the work environment, it destroys the integrity of the work environment. And guess what? You're the brother to that guy. You would never claim to be the destroyer, but you're the brother to him who gets, who gets sucked into that work environment that tears people, tear people down. This is very relevant these days because Gallup says that worldwide 13% of employees are disengaged at work. Gallup always uh, does a, a yearly poll where they talk about employee engagement. And they've got, I think, um, 164 countries that they monitor right now. And as they monitor these countries, they say 13% of employees worldwide are engaged at work. The rest of them are disengaged or actively disengaged. So this proverb, you know, a brother to him who destroys, this is highly relevant, not just in our culture, but around the world. People who are disengaged at work tend to be people who erode the honor uh, in that place. Now, so far we've talked about three ways you can, you can erode honor. You can erode it through your words. You can erode it through your work. You can isolate yourself from other people. And I hope at this point that you would look at yourself and you would say, does that really reflect me? And I would hope you would say, you know what? There are times when I isolate myself from good advice. There are times where maybe I don't really engage at work and I'm slack. Maybe there are times where I misuse my words. What Proverbs, what Solomon wants us to do is to confront ourselves by the ways that we bring dishonor into the cultures that we're part of, like our family culture, like our work culture, like our extended 
uh, group of friends. It's very easy to bring dishonor into the cultures in which we exist. So, what's the antidote? Well, righteous people do one thing really well. They do one thing extraordinarily well. And here's the verse. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and he's safe. A rich man's wealth, on the other hand, is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. What do the righteous do really well? They do one thing. They relentlessly pursue God. Now, at this point, we have to ask the question, um, why is it that Solomon spends like nine verses talking about the fool and how he erodes his honor and one verse talking about how the righteous enhance honor? Why does he do that? The reason why is because it's so easy to erode your honor. It's so easy to slack off in your words, to slack off in your work, to slack off in terms of personal discipline. It's so easy. And so he spends nine verses describing the ease with which people do that, and one verse saying the main thing, the main way that you move toward honor is by, first and foremost, relentlessly pursuing God. But I'm getting, I'm getting way ahead of myself. First of all, we got to define who the righteous person is. The righteous person in Proverbs chapter 18 is not the same as the righteous person in the New Testament. Because you go to the book of Romans, and the righteous person is the person who has been declared to be in a right standing with God by virtue of his or her faith in Christ, like imputed righteousness. That's the way the New Testament tends to use that term. Whereas the Old Testament tends to use the term righteous as people who have become experientially righteous by practicing certain spiritual disciplines. We see that especially in the Proverbs. Somebody who's a believer, and they are growing in righteousness because they practiced certain spiritual disciplines. So what does the righteous person do? He's demonstrated to be righteous because he's continually, relentlessly, assiduously pursuing God. That's the heart of his, his life. And the result of this person pursuing God is he runs to the Lord's name like it's a strong tower and he's safe. So let's just imagine for a second that you are a farmer and you do farming on the Sea of Galilee and you have a wonderful vineyard that produces wine by the Sea of Galilee. If you're one of those farmers, you have a barrier around your farm which would be a stone wall. And at the edge of that barrier, you're going to have a tower. Why would you have a tower? Because the ancient world is, is, uh, is difficult. And maybe there are people who would love to come at your vineyard and steal your grapes and reduce your crop. Or maybe there are bandits who would love to come to your field and not just steal your grapes but harm you. What do you do in that case? What do you do if a wild animal gets into your vineyard and is coming after you? You race toward that tower, you go inside that tower, and you race up to the top of the tower, pull the ladder in, and you're safe, and you're safe. 
So here's an example of an ancient watchtower with, sh with stairs and, and a shade on top. That's what it would have looked like in the ancient world. Here's an idealized version of that, kind of an artist's rendition of what this would, what this would look like. Um, in this case, the stairs are on the outside, not, not like a ladder on the inside. And what the person in the ancient world would do is that would race to that tower, race up the stairs, block the entrance up above, and that person would be safe, rising above the circumstances. That's how the righteous person pursues God. God is that person's strong tower, that, that high place. So um, thinking about this as a picture of our relationship with God, the field represents our life, right? The field represents our life. Sometimes life goes really well, sometimes not so much. And in life, what righteous people do is they develop the spiritual discipline of racing toward that tower and finding their protection and their safety in that tower. But what's the tower represent? The tower represents the name of God. You remember that uh, God revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush. And God gave His name as a full sentence name, I am who I am. Full sentence name. That full sentence name um, was shortened to simply I am. Now, this full sentence name affir affirms the purity of God's infinite being. It's, those are the Hebrew letters up there. And basically what God is saying is, I am power with no limitation. I am being without dependence. I am existence that transcends time and space. I am who I am. It's a wonderful statement about God being the transcendent, infinite, personal God of the universe who is over and above and beyond all things, and yet someone who is very near. When God shortens His name to I am, what God is saying to Moses is, Moses, I'm there for you. God is saying, I am there as a pragmatic help to you, Moses. How do we know that? Because Moses gives, gives objections to going to Egypt to free the captives. And every time Moses gives an objection, what God says is, Moses, trust me. Trust me. It's like you're saying, Moses, I am giving you myself. Moses, I am giving you my presence. Moses, I am giving you my power. My name means I'm there for you in the details of life. Therefore, when you run to God, you're running to a person who loves you. You're running to a person who's there for you. You're running to a person who can pour out His power you're running to a person who will embrace you with his warm love. You're running to a person who will lift you up into a place of protection and safety where you're able to rise above the circumstances. So what the righteous person does is he continually runs toward the name of God. Therefore, God is the one who lifts that person up into a place of honor. We see this in a, a, great, a great verse in Isaiah. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, 
Yet, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. You know, the idea about the eagle image is the eagles live high, high, high up in the mountains. The eagles soar high, high up in the air. Mounting with wings like eagles means that God is rising you above the circumstances. I love it that in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the eagles, you know, come for Frodo and Sam. When Frodo and Sam have nowhere else to go, the eagles are the ones who rescue Frodo and Sam and take them back uh, to the city. God is interested in lifting you up from your circumstances. So you see your circumstances in a different way, but you run to Him as a person, and He's the one who lifts you up and you're safe. Now, the converse to this is the next verse. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. I love the contrast, right? Because the contrast is, is so, so dramatic. In verse 10, we see a strong tower. In verse 11, we see a strong city. Which is more protective? The strong city would be, right? Except for the fact the strong city is only in that person's imagination. It's not real. And what the writer of Proverbs is saying to us is, look, you, you've got this choice in life. You can default toward fake safety and fake protection and fake power, or you can default to real safety, real protection, and real power. The fake protection is the things you devise in your own imagination. The real stuff is running to the God of the universe, running to His name, and encountering His supernatural power. Now, why does that have to do with, with honor? Well, the reason why it has to do with honor is because it's God who produces honor as a byproduct of you running toward Him. Now, I'm not saying there are things you can do in order to enhance honor in your life. Communication is a really important thing. Working well is a really important thing. Guarding your lips is a really important thing. Those are important things. But this chapter says that real honor is the byproduct of your supernatural relationship with God where you're running to His name as if it's a strong tower, and He's the one who lifts you up into a place of safety. And the final verse is kind of the payoff. If you want honor, you get it through the humility of the righteous, not through the pride of the fool. Here's the last verse. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. It's like, you know what, I, I, I got a choice to make in, in my, my life. I got two paths. Either God is going to make me high up because I run to His name, or I fantasize about my high walls of fake protection. Either God brings me to a place of true height, or I kind of manufacture in my own mind what I think that true height is. Either I'm humble or I choose the other path, which is to be haughty. And what God, what the writer of Proverbs would say is, cho choose the humble part. Now, we hear this all over the Scriptures, but this is my favorite. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name 
is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And you would expect the next verse to be, and not with you, because you're low. You're dust on this little planet at the edge of a little solar system. You're, you're so small. I don't dwell with you. But God doesn't say that. He says, I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says that in a different place, Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, and this is the one to whom I will look. And you'd think the one who by his sheer power of excellence, I'll look to that one who has done great things. No, he says, this is the one to whom I'll look, I'll look the one who is humble and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Humility is the pathway to honor. Uh, again, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever, uh, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus' half-brother, James, says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will be the one to lift you up. This last verse is telling us, you know, we, we have a, a radical choice in life, a two-option choice. Either I'm going to choose the way of the fool, which is the way of isolating from accountability relationships, the way of, of not guarding my lips, the way of messing up with my work. I choose that way, or I run to the Lord and, and to His name as a strong tower, and He lifts me up. i got those two choices. And the one choice is going to erode honor, the other choice is going to enhance honor. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous person runs to it and he's lifted up and safe. One final story. My, my adult children began to champion this as a culture amongst themselves about maybe eight, eight nine years ago. And I will tell you, it's had a transformative impact on Cindy and I, as well as a transformative impact on our grandkids. Where did that come from? Where did it come from? Um, it came from them having an experience with the Lord where honor was an important value within their, their relationships, which, believe me, our kids fought like cats and dogs when they were little. Okay, <laughs> like our, our family was like every other family fighting and, you know, like we thought, we, we, we've totally failed as parents. We've just totally failed. Our kids hate each other. They could always hate each other. Terrible. But they intentionally chose that and it has had a profound impact on the culture, just the culture of, of us as, as an extended family. And what I'm saying to you is that if you choose this as a culture that you exude, it has a ripple effect outward and it affects a family, an extended family. It affects a cubicle, it affects an office suite, it affects a division, it affects a corporation, it affects a small business. 
It has a ripple effect outward, but it begins with you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they're safe. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we thank you, Lord, for the many names that are ascribed to you in the Bible. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, Emmanuel, Jesus of Nazareth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Savior of many names. And no matter what place we are in in our life, we can run to your character as if it's a safe place and a place that simultaneously lifts us up into a place of honor. Thank you, Jesus, that your name is not just a name. Your name is a place in which we can dwell. In Jesus' name, amen.